This podcast is brought to you by DIA, the trusted global neutral forum for healthcare product development professionals. DIA, driving insights to action. In 2021, the 74th World Health Assembly adopted the Global Patient Safety Action Plan 2021-2030 towards eliminating avoidable harm in healthcare with a vision of a world in which no one is harmed in healthcare and every patient receives safe and respectful care every time, everywhere. The Global Patient Safety Action Plan 2021-2030 provides a strategic direction for concrete actions to be taken by countries, stakeholders, including patients, family members, patient organizations, and civil society, healthcare facilities, and the World Health Organization to jointly deliver safer and more respectful care around the world. I'm Mary Stober-Murray, Vice President of Collaborative Action Networks for the National Minority Quality Forum. I also serve as Patient Engagement Editor for DIA Global Forum, and today it is my pleasure to welcome Susan Sheridan, who is a founding member of Patients for Patient Safety US, which is committed to implementing the World Health Organization Global Patient Safety Action Plan in the United States. Susan has served as WHO External Lead for Patient Safety, as Director of Patient Engagement for the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, or PCORI, and as Director of Patient Engagement for the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sue, and welcome. Thank you, Mary. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Sue Jin to talk about the Global Patient Safety Action Plan and all that we can do together to make our world a safer place. Thank you, Sue. And you beat me to the punch a little bit. We also welcome <laughs> Sue Jin Jun. Sue Jin is also a founding member of Patients for Patient Safety U.S., Sujin has described herself as a patient safety activist, advocate, pharmacist, and empathy and compassion believer, and we are grateful for her for joining us today. Welcome, Sujin. Thank you very much for having me, Mary, and I'm very excited to discuss patient safety, empathy, and compassion as having been introduced by you. Thank you. It's a very unusual title. Hopefully, we'll see more folks with that in their title. You've both done great work in the field of patient safety, and you've both been motivated to work in patient safety through personal experiences. Before we discuss the WHO Safety Action Plan, we'd like to ask you both to please explain why patient safety is so important to you personally, as well as professionally, and what are the most important unresolved issues in patient safety today. Sue, would you like to go first? What brought me here is a big change in life. My career was international trade finance banker. And overnight with the birth of my son, Cal in 1995, 27 years ago, he was born healthy and happy. And sadly, five days later, he suffered permanent brain damage from several failures in the healthcare system from what was known as ABO, blood incompatibility. Cal suffered permanent brain damage simply because of his newborn jaundice. There were handoff problems. There was a documentation error. They failed to test his blood and treat his newborn jaundice. It was really very easy to prevent. So Cal now has lifetime cerebral palsy, hearing impaired, speech impaired. I have to say that my son really is very funny and very smart. He's a stand-up comedian, believe it or not, and he, he can barely stand up. 
And then four years later, my husband, Pat, he also suffered a medical error where his malignant pathology got lost in a healthcare system. So it was assumed by my husband's doctor and us that his pathology was benign. So we went on and lived our lives as we were told to do so by the neurosurgeon. And we learned six months later that when my husband's tumor reappeared in his neck, that they had lost his malignant pathology and his cancer during the non-treatment metastasized throughout his spinal column and they couldn't save his life. So he died when he was 45, two kids, Cal was then six and Mackenzie, our daughter that we had during that time was only four. So I saw two huge medical errors in my lifetime. I recognized that I could not change what happened to Pat and Cal. But, you know, I came from a very disciplined profession in banking where there was a lot of oversight, a lot of regulation. And I thought that was the same in our healthcare system, but I really learned to my surprise that nobody was really in charge. So I really stepped into a new world of advocacy and awareness raising about how unsafe our healthcare system was. And I began testifying in Washington, D.C. and actually around the world. And I met many mothers just like me who had a child with brain damage from jaundice. It's known as kernicterus. So we formed a nonprofit and we changed the standard of care. So through working with researchers, the Joint Commission, CDC, NIH, and all the partners in our healthcare system, together we stepped into the patient safety improvement world and worked hand in hand with our experts to change the standard of care in our country and quite frankly, other countries. So I got to see what I call the power of partnership, how important it is for patients and family members and patient organizations to have a seat at the table, to be in the room where the decisions are made. And that way, I truly believe we can change things. Thank you, Sue. I mean, it's really remarkable to hear these two episodes in the span of five years and the motivation then that you had to do something about it. Sujin, I know this is also a part of your story. Would you share your experience? It was about 16 years ago when my father was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and he had transitions from hospitals to a nursing home. When the home nurse came to our home, I was given a medication list. And at the time, I was not a pharmacist. I was a wedding videographer. All I knew was making joyful moments for couples and shooting them in video. I had no knowledge of healthcare and I was healthy, so no encounter of healthcare at all. During that transition, he was diagnosed with diabetes at some point, and I happened to find out when the list of medications was given, he had about 20 medications. He had to be tested five times a day for his insulin, and I just simply followed the direction. One of the medication was sliding scale insulin, and it had the direction of giving so much insulin when the glucose reading was high. So what that means is higher the reading is, you would give higher dose of insulin. I just thought I would just follow the direction as it was given to me. There was no education about diabetes, intricate relationship of food, dehydration, reading of glucose and his feeding. All these components can affect the glucose readings when we measure through the glucometer. The tricky part of sliding scale insulin was that you would give higher dose when the reading is high. And all these intricate relationships 
can affect and give false reading. So what would happen was I would give higher dose and he would crash right away and have low sugar because it was a false reading. So we would go to ER, the ER would restore the glucose and discharge him. And then we would repeat the same thing two weeks later. So clearly he was getting frustrated because he was not getting better. Uh, I was trying to get answers from the doctor and the doctor mis- dismissed our concerns. He just wanted to get to our country, which was South Korea. And we booked our flight. And one week before our flight, she had severe abdominal pain and passed away. So that became my motivation to really do something about healthcare. And I thought a pharmacist would be the bridge between the patient's and doctor's relationship. And somebody who could have helped me understand his disease and the medication. So I became a pharmacist afterwards. It took me about eight, nine years and was very long and difficult journey. It needed so much support from my family and kids. But after I became one, I realized I was just at tip of iceberg. There was just so much to be done in patient safety. I began to interact with a lot of people that were from various backgrounds, from entrepreneurs, activists, advocates, who were very passionate about changing healthcare. And I began to think, what could be the solution for what's happening in healthcare? And that's why I emphasize empathy and compassion. And because I'm an artist, I strongly believe art and empathy can be a tool for healing our healthcare. I truly believe our healthcare needs to heal before we can properly take care of patients with patient safety in mind. During those times, I met other activists, including Sue, and we now have these wonderful people of activists and patients for Patient Safety U.S. Thank you also for sharing that very painful experience. And again, to me, remarkable what call to action you can take from that. Imagine embarking on a nine-year education to become a pharmacist, but thank goodness for that because now we have you and Sue in this role of advocacy for patient safety. Both of you described experiences that were within the U.S. healthcare system, but you're now part of the World Health Organization's Global Patient Safety Action Plan. So we know experiences like this are not unique to the U.S. They are all over the world. So Susan, could you talk a little bit about more what created the urgency now in this moment for the World Health Organization to launch this Global Patient Safety Action Plan? Mary, if you remember, patient safety really came to the forefront in 1999, I think it was, with the seminal report to Air as Human. That report reverberated around the world. It really was the catalyst for the WHO to start their patient safety. It was called then the World Alliance for Patient Safety in 2004. Since 2004, the world and the United States have not met the patient safety goals that were articulated into Air as Human. Matter of fact, it appears that from data that we've made very little progress in the last 20 years. So the World Health Assembly, that's part of the United Nations, called WHO to action in 2019 and said to WHO, they had to come up with a global patient safety action plan for the world. And this is the result of that because the World Health Assembly was also noticing that global patient safety was not improving. 
Currently, the estimate is 2.6 million people die every year around the world from patient safety events. And here in our country, in the United States, we just learned from an Office of Inspector General report that one in four Medicare patients suffer harm in U.S. hospitals. So to answer your your question, it's that we have not made the progress that we need to make to keep patients globally safe from harm in the healthcare system. Sujin, I see you nodding. What would you add to that? I also want to add that someone like my dad and me, the main medical error that we are talking about is omission. And a lot of omissions are not even counted as medical errors. And because of that, I speak on behalf of a lot of people with language barriers, which was part of what we had, language and cultural barriers. And because we were so unfamiliar with the navigation and it was just so difficult to understand the culture of healthcare here, I think it's really important to emphasize health equity. And that work comes a lot in the conversations these days, especially after COVID-19 although we are still experiencing COVID-19. But health equity, although it can mean meeting people where they are, someone like my dad, who is not even counted in the statistics, it's equivalent to patient safety. And some people probably just suffer silently and don't even fathom to seek health care in this country because we cannot provide equitable health care. And something to be aware of, of as our global population is moving around constantly. Now with the remote work, people can be living anywhere in the world and be working in a totally different place. My brother is a good example. He lives in South Korea and works in the United States hours. So when it comes to time we have to seek healthcare, it can be any time. With the globalization and global movement of the population, any of you can be seeking health care in different countries. And recognizing this alone, I think, can really make a difference. That there are people who are not the majority that we may have to deal with. And here, the minority is a fluid term that can mean very different things. It can be disability, language barrier social determinants of health, whatever it is, there are people who cannot access the health care for various reasons. So important to recognize these people and design health care the way it could be. Our health care system is not designed for chronic health management. A lot of things are designed around acute care, and so are a lot of systems worldwide. Health equity and recognition of the need for redesigning I think these are the two important things to be aware of. Sue, Sujin's laid out several of the factors related to global patient safety, but perhaps you can add to that. I just want to return to the Global Patient Safety Action Plan and just the urgency. I mean, when the World Health Assembly called for a Global Patient Safety Action Plan, they called directly to every government healthcare system and the public in the world for the first time collectively. So they're not just saying governments and healthcare facilities, but they're calling in the public. And that's what Sujin and I are part of. And that was a really bold and big step for the World Health Assembly and the WHO. Going back to the factors, you know, some of the main factors that we have to really address in patient safety, they're vast. And the Global Patient Safety Action Plan itself outlines seven main areas that they think really needs to be addressed. 
One of them, of course, is patient and family engagement. The WHO and the World Health Assembly recognize that science and technical expertise alone has not solved the problem and will not solve the problem of patient safety unless they engage the public, the patients, the family members, the patient and civil society organizations with lived experience. And it's taken a long time for them to recognize that. But that is one area that has been absent, the true lived experience of patients who've experienced unsafe care to really provide their knowledge and their insight and their perspective. So that's one area that has been underutilized in the past 20 years. Another area that the Global Patient Safety Action Plan wants to focus on is new policies to eliminate avoidable harm in healthcare. We don't have all the policies that we need. Each country needs to look at the policies they have. Are they really investing in and creating what they call high reliability organizations where they've got the right governance and they're transparent and they're sharing data? Another area they're calling on is the safety of clinical practices. So like Sujin being a pharmacist, there's medication safety that Sujin will probably address. There's hand hygiene, hospital-acquired infection that is rampant. There's unsafe surgery. Those three areas really are some of the biggest hand hygiene, hospital-acquired infection, and unsafe surgery are some of the three top issues that need to be addressed globally. Another thing that needs to be addressed, along with disparities and inequities, are barriers such as the culture. Some countries culturally to talk about patient safety and errors is a difficult conversation. You walk a very fine line when you talk about indicating that a very prestigious, very respected profession is causing harm to people. So cultural barriers exist. Some countries even don't have running water or electricity. And so many countries are going to be starting at different places in this plan, but these barriers do exist. And so we need to make sure that as the world goes forward in patient safety, all these barriers are in front of us. So collectively, we can start solving them. Thank you. Let's go to that medication error point that you brought up. And Sujin, as a pharmacist, what can we be doing about medication error? Medication error is a huge global issue. There are just so many things that go into it from developing the clinical trials, studying the population, getting the right diagnosis, and getting the right drugs, accessing the drug in a cost-effective way. There are just so many barriers for patients. WHO's theme for this year's World Patient Safety Day is Medication Without Harm. They have an app for this cause, and in it, you can see the questions that are focused on medication. Questions to ask the doctor about the medication, when you're starting the medication, when you're taking the medication, when you're adding the medication to your list, reviewing the medication, and then when you are stopping the medication. So these are the five different moments of medication safety that WHO is focusing on. And these questions are empowering patients. That peace has to be always there because many patients spend their time at home taking care of their own medications, and they are managing their medications themselves. It is not the clinicians who are doing those jobs. So if we don't empower the patients and we rely on clinicians to do these things, it's not going to stick for sure. The empowerment of patients and educating the patients and caregivers are so important. And there is another point I want to emphasize the role of caregivers. And it is being recognized even more nowadays, not just the patients who need to be educated, 
We have to educate the caregivers and make sure they are there when patients are being discharged or when there is an educational session. Caregivers have to be there because patients may not be at a time where they can understand or they can be overwhelmed with all the information that's being fed for them. So the advocacy of patients needs to be supplemented. I feel that's something that is underutilized. A lot of people don't know what a patient advocate is, that there is a private advocate that you can hire. I certainly did not know that. That role has increased from 15, 16 years ago when I was a caregiver. Nowadays, there are patient advocates you can hire, and you have somebody to take notes and be with you when you're not feeling well and when there's no one else to take with you. So sometimes you make a decision on surgery, and when you go to the doctor's office and if you don't make the decision right and you don't get the time from the doctor, that's a critical moment. It's a very dangerous moment. And it's the same for the medication. When a doctor prescribes a chemotherapy, and if you don't know what's going on and you just accept without really understanding the side effects or what the medication really does, you really don't know what you're signing up for. That can be really dangerous. And there has been some improvement in that regard. But there's just so many gaps and things that we can do around medication safety is critical. And I didn't even talk about disposing the medication. It's a global challenge. And some countries cannot even fathom to do medication reconciliation after hospital discharge, even though they are aware this is a problem, because there's no manpower to do this. It is very complex process. And it's something that everyone globally needs to pay attention to. Yeah, I was just going to add kind of three points to that with WHO and Medication Without Harm. They've been having a series of webinars and they've really focused, like Sujin said, on patient family engagement. We are a big part of making sure that our loved ones or ourselves, that we're getting the right medication, the right amount. So we have to play a really critical role. WHO is also really focusing on that dangerous spot that Sujin said, that transition of care like her father. So there's a big global focus on this when patients move from facility to home to other facility to long-term care to rehab. And then they're also really focusing on polypharmacy. You know, when patients are taking more than five or seven medications that can result in delirium and other conditions where no one's paying attention. When one facility's prescribing medications and another one is piling on top of that and then another on top of that, that can kill patients. So those are some kind of buckets that WHO is focusing on. Thank you for that. Sujin started, I asked a question about medication error, and she said, it's a big issue. And I think you both shared with us how big. The other takeaway I'm getting from that is how important our role is as patients and caregivers in that conversation to protect ourselves, to advocate for ourselves within the system. And it's good to know that that is an important part of the Global Safety Action Plan. And you know, Mary, I would say... Not only is it that we need to be active in our own care, we need to be active in redesigning care because the way care is designed, it is not safe. And so in the Global Patient Safety Action Plan to WHO's credit, they have a big quote that says, perhaps the most powerful tool to improve patient safety are the patients and family members. And for WHO to come out and say that, that we potentially are the most important tool is saying a lot about our role in patient safety and medication safety. Sujin? Because health equity is my passion, I just want to add that some patients 
cannot even think about advocating for themselves because of this cultural notion that they cannot speak up against the doctor. There's also a language barrier coming along. For chronic medication and disease management, if you think about it in the shoes of the patient with a language barrier, that patient may not get the same interpreter every time they go in to see a doctor, even if there's an interpreter. So there's this continuity of care being effective for these patients. WHO is very right about redesigning healthcare with patients in mind. But I also want to stress that it's important to think of these populations who may have barriers continuously, and we have to figure out how we can take care of these patients. How do we help these patients to manage their medications and diseases more effectively? If we don't get feedback from these patients, how can we figure that out? And there's very little effort in trying to find out what their thoughts are. Getting the feedback loop is always something that I advocate for when it comes to patient advocacy and patient safety. I have two other areas that I want to get us to. We've talked about medications that's approved medications, but Sue, I understand there's also um, impact on clinical trials. So patients participating in the development of new medications. How does the Global Patient Safety Action Plan look at clinical research? Well, let me back up just a little bit because they look at research through a broad lens. And so they look at research to improve patient safety. So that's really across the board, not just therapeutics. But what's unique about their call when it comes to research in the Global Patient Safety Action Plan is that patients need to play a substantial role in setting the research priorities, whether they're therapeutics, devices, digital health technology, or even how care is delivered, that patients will be playing a very big role in determining, number one, the priorities. Patients, they'll be involved in determining the study design, the safety of the study. Patients now are on, they're called DSMBs, the Data Safety Monitoring Boards, where I think patients will be engaged in research that's going to result in something that matters to the patient and that that process is safe to the patients. And I've had the honor of working at Bacori for six years directly in patient engagement in research, where patients were really driving the research agenda, determining who would be the participants in the study, what were their characteristics. So they were determining the inclusion, exclusion criteria. They were determining where the studies took place to make sure that it was convenient and enabled a lot of people to participate. They did the surveys. They wrote a lot of the instructions for the research. So I think what patients are going to see in the future, based on the Global Patient Safety Action Plan, is research driven by patients. I would say co-designed by patients and co-conducted by patients. And then when there's the research results, the patients will also help disseminate that. And so it's really bringing patients into the research enterprise to ensure that the knowledge that is generated will be the type of knowledge that benefits us. So I think it's a real paradigm shift in research. And I'm excited to see how WHO will implement this globally, encouraging countries to engage patients and family members in helping drive their research. So how do you see then the Global Patient Safety Action Plan rolling out, particularly, as you just mentioned, bringing in patients in this really dominant role? 
How do you see it rolling out? And then I'm going to ask a follow-up question on what does success look like? How will we know it's working or doing any better than what we've seen over the past 20 years? So I'll start with Sue and then ask Sue Jin to weigh in. So what we're going to see here in the near future, and we're already seeing it, countries are starting out with this Global Patient Safety Action Plan. They're starting where they are. So different countries will start at different places. Some may be just beginning the dialogue with their governments or their healthcare facilities, where others are more advanced. So we have to respect the fact that different countries are starting at different places. But what WHO has requested of the countries is to self-reflect, take a look at yourself, do a self-assessment, establish where are you, and then establishing first the infrastructure. Who's going to be leading this? What alliances are they going to create with patients? What policies and budgets do they need? So this is like laying the groundwork right now because this was just launched a year ago. So that's what we're seeing in countries where there's presentations, there's government workshops, there's patient groups such as Patients for Patient Safety US. You know, we form because of this. So we're now just integrating into healthcare facilities and our government. So right now we're seeing countries just kind of trying to understand about patient safety, especially patient family engagement. I mean, that's a real new dimension to healthcare. So we have been creating with the WHO, a new framework that'll be launched this summer to guide countries on what does patient family engagement mean and how do you do it? And what are those case studies out there? So we're going to be seeing this rolling out in the countries in very different phases. But I think what's interesting is that the World Health Assembly is so committed and serious to improving patient safety that the WHO is required to report every two years to the WHA on our progress. So countries, especially ministries of health and healthcare institutions, have goals that they are going to try to meet and report. And I think, Sujin, you maybe you know what those are, some of the indicators But they've got a thorough monitoring reporting system that everybody reporting, including the United States, to the WHO on our progress. Sujin? Things that we see in our country are happening in other countries as well. WHO is very interested in our work in our country because we are very tightly knit patient safety activists ourselves. I think what ties us very close is our experiences through those harms and our experience overcoming those harms and then in fact transforming our lives, I think that just makes us very tightly knit and close. Those are good qualities that can inspire other countries as well. We've been contacted by other countries with interest in how to be more engaged with what we are doing. That's something that WHO is interested in seeing because of what Sue said. There are other countries who have something like what we're doing, like Patients for Patient Safety Canada or Patients for Patient Safety Ireland, for example. And other countries may have something similar, but so far we've been successful in engaging governmental organizations and big organizations who are influential to push things forward that other organizations were not able to push. And like Sue said earlier, the policies and everything that's related to patient safety needs to be looked at again with WHO's Global Patient Safety Action in mind and see where we are and reassess. That's really important self-assessment and awareness that we are actively pushing for. It's an exciting time for us. Sue? 
One of the strategies, as I mentioned, the Global Patient Safety Action Plan has, and this is piggybacking on what Sujin just said, one of the strategies, which is really lovely. A lot of people in the world talk about healthcare and they talk about love and they talk about community, not so much in the United States, but one of their strategies is synergy, partnership, and solidarity. And so they really call for all of us. We are global citizens live in the same world. And I really like that about the plan. One of the examples is just last week, another Patients for Patient Safety US partner and I spoke to 6,200 people in Latin America. They had the largest Latin America patient safety conference. So they reached out to us. And so we're giving back to them and we're saying, let's work together. We are not just isolated people in the United States. We all care about patient safety. I just wanted to highlight that part of the global patient safety action. A lot of plans that you see don't talk about partnership, solidarity, and synergy. And I think that's a real strength of this plan. My main takeaway or a main takeaway from this discussion for me, and I think it started when, Sujin, you gave the example of your brother living in South Korea and working in the U.S., right, is we are a global society. We Mm -hmm. do, in many cases, have the luxury to live, work, and travel around the world so that patient safety isn't limited to what we experience in our home country. We can be affected by patient safety and systems around patient safety anywhere in the world at any time. And so I guess what I'm leading to is what would you say as global patient citizens, our next step should be? What's a call to action that any individual could be doing over the next year or so to become a part of this effort? My call to action is that we absolutely must democratize healthcare and patient safety. And so my call to action is that governments and health facilities and patient organizations and healthcare systems engage us as problem solvers to help create a safer healthcare system. We have evidence to show the past 20 years without us, we haven't changed. And so that's my call to all of us. And to us as individual patients and caregivers and family members, we have a role to play. Don't be passive. Don't wait for the healthcare system to get better. We all need to contribute at the design level and at the personal level to really get engaged. Sujin? In a recent webinar that I had to present my father's case for WHO, I posed two questions. And those two questions were, is there health and is there care in the interactions in healthcare? What I meant by that was, It's an assessment and empowering questions for each of us as an individual. In those interactions, you have to be getting better. So is there health and is there care? Is that interaction caring? Are you being cared or do you care if you're a clinician? If the patient is not experiencing care or if the clinician feels it's impossible to provide care, That's a call to action moment. Something needs to change at that moment. And after I became a pharmacist, this is something that I realized. The conditions that pharmacists work in is very hard. It's a very hard environment to provide care. We sometimes don't get breaks. We don't even have time to go to the bathroom because we're always multitasking. And some people would ask, isn't that against the law? And I'll leave it up to you. 
about that. And we have to be thinking about clinician burnout, moral injuries, because these things matter. And when there's no cooperation from the upper management and leadership in the company, organizations, policymakers, if we don't speak up, nothing will improve. I'm a proponent of patient safety, but also the clinician safety needs to be addressed. And this is something I personally experienced after I became a pharmacist and have seen many, many pharmacists changing careers, leading the professional together after so many years of studying and being a pharmacist. So after thinking about all this, that's why I drilled down to those two questions. For anybody who cannot answer yes to both questions or any one of the questions, you have to take action. It's time for action. Whether it's speaking up for yourself, whether it's something you have to talk to your boss about or CEO of the company, it's time for action. We have to take action. And this includes patients. We have to be accountable, responsible for where we are, and really think about how healthcare could be, because I focus on redesigning healthcare with patients and as an active participant. So if we want to do that, then we have to make really big paradigm shifts. All of us need to be able to be a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit outside of where we were. If we are looking for a change, we have to take action, something inevitable. You've both described patient safety as a problem that is vast, but I think you've also described that the efforts to reimagine it are equally as vast and getting better organized and being centered around the patients as the partners to be a part of that solution. So I want to really thank you for joining in this discussion today, for making us all aware, number one, of the Global Safety Action Plan and kind of the actors involved in that, but also the personal actions that we can take, as Sujin, you said, whether it's speaking up for ourselves or speaking to a boss This is a problem that will affect us all in a very, very personal way. And the way we approach it with solutions can be equally as personal. You really both illustrated that with your stories today. And I want to thank you so much for spending time in this podcast, but also the time and dedication you're giving to reimagine the system and the place of patients and patient advocates in it. So thank you very much. Thank you you. very much, Mary. For DIA Global Forum, I'm Mary Stober-Murray.
you've both described patient safety as a problem that is vast, but I think you've also described that the efforts to reimagine it are equally as vast and getting better organized and being centered around the patients as the partners to be a part of that solution. So I want to really thank you for joining in this discussion today, for making us all aware, number one, of the Global Safety Action Plan and kind of the actors involved in that, but also the personal actions that we can take, as Sujin, you said, whether it's speaking up for ourselves or speaking to a boss. This is a problem that will affect us all in a very, very personal way. And the way we approach it with solutions can be equally as personal. You really both illustrated that with your stories today. And I want to thank you so much for spending time in this podcast, but also the time and dedication you're giving to reimagine the system and the place of patients and patient advocates in it. So thank you very much. Thank Thank you you very much, Mary. For DIA Global Forum, I'm Mary Stober-Murray. To learn more about this topic, visit us online at diaglobal.org.